I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Call this podcast just two old friends in and out of journalism talking about this Middle East war, which comes to feel more like a contest in war crimes. Steve Erlanger is my friend. He's the New York Times chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe. Too many wars, Steve, in your lifetime. Too many. I'm thinking back of the Balkan Wars, Yugoslavia coming apart. We had wonderful conversations on the radio as it happened. You've been in the Middle East this time. You're back in Berlin on a break. Let's just think about this thing. In the terms that you put forward last week in the Times, all the assumptions or some of the many, many assumptions that have been upended by this war. The thought, for example, even in Bibi Netanyahu, that Hamas could manage Gaza as an open-air prison, or that Israel is invulnerable to attack. Where would you begin in extending that list of realizations, the bad news, or good or whatever, out of this war, Steve? Well, the first thing I would say is there was an assumption that you could park the Palestinian question, that it wasn't the priority, that the priority was the, quote, new Middle East, unquote, which was Israel doing deals with the Gulf, with the UAE, even with Morocco, Oman, and talking with American help to Saudi Arabia about normalization. Now, that was a very big deal, and if it would ever happen, would be a remarkable change. But it meant, in many people's eyes, putting the Palestinians to the side because there was no real answer to what was going to happen to the Palestinians. So that's the first assumption, I think, that's been blown out of the water. And the second assumption for Israel is that it could live next door to a group, Hamas, which is dedicated to its destruction, let it build up its power inside Gaza, and then hope to contain it by letting it have money and some responsibility. Um, and that proved to be a very, very bad assumption that cost 1,400 lives. And the still larger assumption in Jake Sullivan's view that the Middle East was happily in a calm period. Yes, precisely. I mean, he, he was very proud of it, and it was true up to a point, but at the same time, Israel was not calm. Israel was very divided politically for nine months over Prime Minister Netanyahu's new far-right government and its desire to redo the justice system and politicize it. And his new cabinet had some really right-wing, very Jewish nationalist types who were pushing settlements in the West Bank saying terrible things about the Palestinians, encouraging settlers to take more land, building up incredible tensions with Palestinians. And so that belied Jake Sullivan's calm as well. Yeah. The Abraham Accords were going to blanket the territory. The United States could let go of the Middle East, as you said. Can I throw out a a new shattered assumption that the two-state solution was dead? seems to me, in the last few days, you could argue that the two-state solution is back for the very simple reason that somebody's got to run Gaza after this war, and that whoever does it, and whoever helps, including maybe the Saudis, maybe Jordan, Egypt, 
certainly the United States will be in on it. Whoever helps is going to be in a position to insist on a two-state solution, which everybody outside the Netanyahu government wants. Is that possible? That's possible. It's the optimistic view, and I like to be optimistic. Um, the problem is, frankly, for a long time, Israelis have moved to the right. They've lost faith in the Palestinians. Palestinians have lost faith in the Israelis. And to some degree, the Israelis have lost faith in themselves, and the Palestinians also lost faith in themselves, which is why Hamas has such a big impact. But only the United States can pick up the pieces from this charnel house whenever it ends. And as you say, the biggest question from the beginning is who will run Gaza? If Israel manages to dismantle the Hamas power structure inside Gaza, there are two options. One is what you're suggesting, is that there's a period of international control, even perhaps like over Kosovo after the war, when the Palestinian Authority can be rebuilt and some sort of political settlement of at least temporary made with the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority can take control over Gaza with international help and peacekeeping. I don't think any Arab country would be willing to peacekeep over Palestine, but it could be NATO countries would. Um, that's the optimistic. The less optimistic is Israel says, we don't want anything to do with this place. We're going to create a buffer zone inside Gaza. We're going to mine it. We're going to build a real wall. We don't care what happens to them. And if we see things going on we don't like, we're just going to go in and pound them again, which will be a lot like southern Lebanon. And that's a big possibility also. That's the pessimistic one. Very pessimistic, Steve. It seems to me in the general vague glow of the Abraham Accords in that spirit, one can hear a Saudi willingness to invest and other states to to take part on the ground. And it can't be an Israeli occupation. No. The Israelis know that too. Let me throw out another related point, though. You know, assumptions being shattered. One is, this has become a war of mutual dehumanization. That's almost what this war is about. It's about the pictures, the pictures of cruelty, of people acting in the most barbaric fashion. And something's got to be done about it. Well, yes. I mean, I look on with horror. It's partly what social media has done. It's also partly that neither Egypt or Israel will let Western journalists into Gaza. So it's very hard to verify what's actually happening. But what always has upset me is anyone who thinks the Middle East is about ecumenicism gets it wrong. It's about tribes. It's about clans. It's about two tribes fighting over the same land. And unfortunately, when you add God into the mix, i.e. God gave it to me, no God gave it to me, you get a very, very volatile kind of um, eradication of the other's right to the land. If it were simply two tribes over land, you could actually come up with a territorial compromise that would probably work. But if you believe that Allah gave it to Muslims and Israel shouldn't exist, which is what Hamas believes, or if, as many ultra-right Israelis believe, God gave all of biblical Israel back 
to the Jews, including the entire West Bank, and so Palestinians don't exist. It's very, very hard to come up with any kind of compromise. And then, of course, you have this fervor over what I call a charnel house. I mean, the amount of death now is unprecedented. And the visibility of it and the face-to-face of it. It's appalling. I don't know any religious people that think God gave us the right to anything if that is the price. Not just the war, the disappearance of any notion of shared humanity. I agree with that. I mean, but in Israel, in Israel proper, you have 1,200 civilians at least slaughtered in their homes. They're not settlers. I mean, these are Israeli citizens living in Israel. It set off a desire for an anger, an embarrassment, a humiliation, a desire for revenge, a desire to kill the people who killed them. Right. And the problem, as always with Gaza, is Gaza's an orphan. Nobody wants Gaza. The Egyptians don't want Gaza. Anwar Sadat didn't want Gaza back. The Jordanians don't want Gaza. Israel doesn't want Gaza. Somebody's got to rule and take care of Gaza. That's Mm. absolutely right. And in the meantime, one does worry about the old old line, maybe it's Cicero, but I've always thought of it as a sort of Russian rabbi who said, we shall make a graveyard and call it peace. That was always ascribed to Tacitus. Tacitus, thank you. Roman historian. Thank you. And it comes to the point of criminal absurdity or absurd criminality that Israelis bombing the tunnels in Gaza may in fact be taking the lives of the hostages that were taken by Hamas in southern Israel. I mean, this is completely insane. And as I say, any child can recognize it. Something's got to be done. Let me go on to another sort of big point that we hadn't quite anticipated. Roger Cohen writes about it in the New York Times today, but is the incredible rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. And it's said to be out there bubbling in the United States as never before since this war began. Roger Cohen writes that Jews in Europe are living in an atmosphere of fear that nobody quite remembers, a fundamental shift in the terms of existence, feeling helpless as never before. Who anticipated this, and how do we begin to cope with it? I don't know if I anticipated it, but I expected it. It's happened every time Gaza's been bombed. I mean, there has been an upsurge of anti-Semitism. Some of it is anti-Israel and not anti-Semitism. Some of it is pro-Palestinian, which is not anti-Semitic. But some of it is, at bedrock, a confusion between what's an Israeli and what's a Jew. And I think this is exaggerated, but it has also become more important since the 2008 migration crisis, when a lot of Muslims, young men from Syria and other areas of the Middle East came to Europe who were very angry about the treatment of Palestinians who don't know much, to be honest, um, and they have changed to some degree the population. And I don't saying that's a bad thing, it's just true. I mean, Germany, for instance, most of its Muslims were Turks. Turks were pretty well assimilated. Now there's a big group of young, angry men who've come from 
parts of the Mideast that Israel's been in conflict with, and they, they are very, very angry about Gaza. I understand why they're angry about Gaza. And, of course, you have this new notion of what is decolonization and who is privileged and who's on top and who's on the bottom, which adds to a very conflicted left inside Europe. You see this even in Britain inside the Labour Party. It's one of these moral choosing moments that has people very, very conflicted, I think. Can I push back a little bit on that, Steve? I'm very wary of people turning these war issues into identity issues. I remember George Bush, after 9-11, said in so many words, you know, why do they hate us? Why did they do this? It's because we love freedom or some such. They're attacking us for who we are rather than what we do. I'd much rather keep my eye on what people are doing and and deal with it that way. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I do. And I think you're right to push that. I mean, I felt even then, I remember having lunch with Susan Sontag like two days after 9-11. You know, I had just come out of covering Kosovo War. And I said, you know, it's what we do. I mean, we often think when we're dropping bombs, they're not bombs, they're medicine, that we're dropping bombs for the health of the people on which we're dropping them. So I think that's a very powerful argument. But there is also, I think, a degree of, of fear because ordinary Jews going about their lives are afraid to wear kippahs. They're afraid to go to the synagogue. In Paris, you had, I don't know who did it, but you had people spray painting Jewish stars outside people's houses. This is scary stuff. And it's scary even around Greater Boston. I hear about it in ways that are disturbing. Speaking of 9-11 and Gaza, the other thing that has surfaced in my head, and I think a lot of others, is this strange symmetry in the screw-ups here. Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the 9-11 attack, was our mercenary in Afghanistan fighting the Russians, who turned against us. In this case, Hamas, with that brutal, barbaric assault on southern Israel, had been, in effect, Bibi Netanyahu's man in Gaza, who turned against his paymaster or his friend. In both cases, the United States and now Israel stepped into a big trap with its mischievous alliances before. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I do. I would push back only to this extent, which is we were funding Osama bin Laden to fight the Russians. Bibi's not funding Hamas to kill Israelis. That's where this falls down. I think the Israelis were not particularly naive about what Hamas is, what Hamas represents, but Netanyahu's policy was even more cynical in a way because he wanted to divide the Palestinians between the West Bank and Gaza to ensure he didn't have to negotiate peace, that there wouldn't be a two-state solution. And so he thought he could keep Gaza to the side, that Gaza wasn't an existential threat. Yes, there were rockets from time to time, and there were incursions, of course, but that Hamas would get so occupied with 
governing and taking care of people and maybe it would moderate and if you kept Gazans relatively well fed and so on, you could contain them with this super technological barrier the Israelis built. And that's part of what all fell apart on October 7th. Yeah, all I meant to say was that the Netanyahu government was making common cause with Hamas to undermine the PLO, but also because Hamas was dedicated to block a two-state solution in Palestine. They were allied in that strange way, and they were allied with a monster. Yes, and of course, Hamas is also the enemy of Fatah. It's the enemy of Mahmoud Abbas, who runs the Palestinian Authority, who's been doing his best to keep Hamas out of the Palestinian Authority. Everybody forgets, of course, that Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, also is head of the Palestine Liberation Organization, which actually is the legal representative of Palestinians, and Hamas has no part in it at all. Among the other sort of new or shattered assumptions, Steve, I'm just struck that this war has gone public in a way that the Ukraine war didn't. There was not much protest. There was minimal, if any, debate in Congress about what we were doing in Ukraine. But suddenly, this is an entirely different matter. There are street protests in Europe, and you've seen them, and there's a lot of action on campuses and on streets in the United States, too. The people and the street are back in the generation of foreign policy and argument. Where does that go? I think you've put your finger on something very important. I'm just curious whether the street is going to be back on any other issue other than this issue. I mean, this issue touches so many nerves. In America, as you know, I mean, foreign policy toward Israel is really domestic policy. And domestic politics matter. And the Republican Party has very strong views about Israel. And the evangelicals have very strong views about Israel. And a lot of Democrats have very strong views about Israel. But what you've had for many years now, and everyone's written about this, is you have among younger Jews in America an increasing distance from this Israel that they don't really recognize. This sort of more far-right, more anti-Arab Israel, which is not the Israel of the 67 war, and it's not the Israel of the survivors of the Holocaust. It's become a Middle Eastern country. And it doesn't feel as familiar to a lot of young American Jews, many of whom are on the left and so feel like the Palestinians have been done dirty and support Palestinian liberation, if you want to call it that, or certainly a separate Palestinian state. And so in America, it's just different. And in Europe, it's different because the left is confused, but also... Europe sees itself as defending a a sort of notion of human rights that's part of the European Union's purpose. And then, as I said, you have younger, different Muslim communities inside Europe that are much more active, that have been much more motivated by what they see on Twitter and Facebook and Telegram, so that they're living with what's going on in Gaza every minute which wasn't possible before. Steve, speak about the assumptions that we used to make and maybe will again, that the world is ours, basically, and the contests of interest in the future are with China. 
Russia, meanwhile, a player sort of somewhere out there. Yes. Those are the players and those are the issues. Where are we now in picturing the global map that's at stake? Well, it's in flux, and it's in flux in a really, I think, interesting way, because if you think of Russia and China together with Iran, because they invited them into the BRICS, right, as some kind of anti-American front, anti-Western axis, they want to change the international system, which they believe has been dominated since World War II by America and and by Western Europe, which is true. And so it's easy for them to put themselves rhetorically on the side of Palestinian liberation and on the side of the poor people of Gaza and the dead children of Gaza without actually having to do anything. Mm. And this way they get to appeal to an anti-American feeling that's already out there in the misnamed but real global South, which again feels very strongly like South Africa, that the Palestinian issue has to be resolved, that Israel is eating up the possibility of a real Palestinian state and has been doing that for Mm. decades now, and that the Americans have put themselves on the side of this project, and it has hurt America's reputation. And it's easygoing for Russia, China. But in another way, it's complicated, if you'll let me say this, for Iran, because Iran doesn't actually want a war with Israel. Iran supported Hamas, but I don't believe Iran gave Hamas the go-ahead to do what it did. Iran supports Hezbollah, which is massively armed in southern Lebanon. But Hezbollah exists to deter Israel from attacking Iran. Hezbollah doesn't exist to defend the Palestinians. They tried this in 2006 when Hassan Nasrallah, who runs Hezbollah, said later he regretted starting a war with Israel. That's not what Hezbollah is about. So Iran, though its rhetoric is go-go Hamas, in fact, it is very reluctant to have a broader war. And the Gulfis, the Sunni Arab states, the Saudis, the Egyptians, they hate Hamas. They hate the Muslim Brotherhood. They're terrified of this kind of religious, radical Islam. That's who killed Sadat, right? Mm. And so they're quietly hoping Israel does put Hamas back into the bottle, but they can't say that. And their streets, their publics are very angry. So it's a very delicate moment, I think, where things really are in flux in a very Mm. important way. And then when you bring up Ukraine, I think that's really important because to me, I may be wrong, but to me, the outcome of the Ukraine war probably has more importance geopolitically than whatever happens to Gaza. Interesting. Steve Erlinger, come back to the assumptions that are in danger or maybe overthrown by now. One of them, I think, is that war rules enforce themselves. Joe Biden can say in a polite way to Benjamin Netanyahu, don't overdo it with the violence. We made some mistakes in that regard. Goes without saying, blah, blah, blah. And none of that advice is either spelled out or taken or enforced. So we come back to what I still think of as 
above all. It's not a geopolitical war. It's a war over humanity and dehumanization, yes. the inability of Israelis to see a claim and see a human being in the Palestinian and equally going the other way. But for all of us to pick up the newspaper or look on the television and not see monsters just clawing each other to death. So question, who is to enforce the war rules? The killing of children, the, the bombing of innocents, the, sure. we see it every day. Well, we see it in lots of places, and there are places where we don't want to see it. I mean, we don't want to see it in Africa, in Somalia, in Sudan. We don't want to see it in places like Pakistan. We don't want to see it in Ukraine in quite the same way. I mean, this is part of what fascinates me. I would push back a little bit about Biden just because it is the Americans who have pushed the Israelis to slow down. It's partly out of American self-interest because America knows the damage that's being done to its own interest. They've said to Netanyahu, don't overdo this. Be careful because you're not only damaging your own interests, but you're damaging our interests, Washington's interests. Exactly. Now, this has been said to them. Now, have they heard it? I think they have heard it to some degree. But they're also, as I've tried to explain, um, struggling with this population in Israel, which asks, what is the Israeli state for if it cannot defend Israelis? So it's a delicate moment there. I think the Biden people are really trying to preach restraint. They're trying to get al-Sisi in Egypt to open up Rafah more. Al-Sisi doesn't want to open up Rafah. He doesn't want all these refugees. He doesn't want Hamas inside the Sinai, right? I mean, there's a lot of people being very cynical about their policies, and I include everybody here. Come back to Joe Biden and Bibi Netanyahu. He didn't say out loud to the world, Bibi, these are our weapons. This is our hardware that you're using, and if you misuse it, over the line, we're vulnerable too to the same charges of criminality that you would be. Yes, that's right. He did not say that. And um, to some degree, this is why always there's a clock, there's a diplomatic clock, and it sounds cold, but it's a chart with civilian deaths inside Gaza and time. And in the past, um, in 2014 and 2012 and 2006. In the end, it was the Americans who pulled out the watch and said, it's enough, stop, mm. right? I think this time, the Americans are trying to give the Israelis more time, given what happened to them, but the clock is running. And I think part of what the Israelis are doing is trying to cut off northern Gaza, to remove as many civilians as possible from northern Gaza, arrange aid for them in southern Gaza, and bomb the hell out of northern Gaza where Hamas is strongest. And it may be a matter of weeks, it may be a matter of months. I think if it's a matter of, let's say, five weeks, six weeks, Israel will not succeed in dismantling all of Hamas. But the clock is running, and we'll see how long Washington can actually bear it. Steve, there's also a political clock, from what we hear, 
Bibi Netanyahu, there's a huge opposition to him. He's regarded as toast politically, even in our White House. But Joe Biden is not doing well politically either. That's right. He looks 10 years older than he did before this war. And moreover, he hasn't spoken clearly or strongly either to Netanyahu or to his own country, I think. Certainly on this part of Netanyahu, his time is over. He is in a unity government he didn't want with his major rivals, at least one of them, Benny Gantz. Another one who's not a general, Yair Lapid, decided to stay out, I think, correctly. When this is over, however it ends, Netanyahu will not last. Now, I don't know when the next election is, but um, there will be accountability and there will be a lot of resignations on the part of high military and intel people. The whole Biden crisis, which is partly about age and, and many things, I can speak to less. I'm just not there. I read about it. I listen to him making misstatements. Uh, people who are in meetings with him tell me he's on the ball at least for four hours a day. But politically, I worry about aid to Ukraine. I worry about this new House Speaker. I worry about how divided America is over this next election. And it just seems to me when you have the world's superpower so dysfunctional that it creates a lot of fragility and anxiety everywhere. Come back to maybe one more assumption that's in danger, and that is this is what we have strategists for, summit meetings for, long-range plans for, in the Henry Kissinger mode, even in the Middle East back in the 70s, this would be time to say, people, something's fundamentally not working. It's time to stand way back, engage some new players, and think 10 years, 20 years ahead. Who is to call, as I would love to call, for the Chinese and the Russians and the whole world, the Arab world, the American world, in on a rethinking a plan for the Middle East? I think that would be really interesting to see. I think the Americans have to lead it. I mean, again, speaking personally, my big regret about Biden is that he hasn't already called for a form of peace conference even during the war to talk about what happens next. But that notion that America has got to lead it, even that is a vulnerable assumption, it seems to me nowadays. Who out there outside the United States is saying, United States, this is your moment. You're the indispensable nation. It sounds almost like a joke when Joe Biden says, we are the indispensable nation. And I can hear Asians and Latin Americans and people all over the world saying, yeah, right, Joe. Well, this is correct. Um, and this is the way they feel about Ukraine, too, many of them, right? Yeah. But it is also true that if you're going to have some kind of new political settlement, which I hope we will have, that's my personal hope, the Israelis only trust the Americans. They don't trust the Europeans. They certainly don't trust the Russians, let alone Chinese. And frankly, even the Palestinians believe that in a negotiation with Israel, their best advocate is the United States. Mm. The Mideast is special. Uh, I don't think the U.S. needs to do it alone, which they've tried to do in the past. But I think the U.S. has to lead because it's the only way Israel will listen. 
even after China's quiet, very sort of, you don't see me, we don't see you, but the wonders that they did between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example. Sure, I mean, but it was pretty well done already. But yes, the Israelis regard themselves in a war. This is not a little conflict, a skirmish. This is a war for the existence of the state. And they are not going to trust their security to some vague international nonsense. They're just not going to, hmm. however lovely it sounds, um, unless there is a serious international peacekeeping group that can guarantee Israel that it will never be attacked again from Gaza, the Israelis aren't going to wear it. That's my fear. That's my concern. And frankly, as I said at the start, you know, Israelis have lost faith in the Palestinians. The big argument in Israel now is we should have never given up Gaza. We should have never given up control because look what happened, right? Which misreads what happened, but that's what people are saying. And um, we can't let that happen in the West Bank. That's their argument. So, you know, it's very nice to talk about international solutions, but they have to have pretty strict, reliable security aspects before Israel will go for them, in my humble opinion. <laughs> my own infinitely humble opinion as a, just a guy reading the news is that um, the world needs to change the framework. Yes. Washington talks about we're in this vital, important, terminal contest with China. Well, why wouldn't they be in on our solutions and our thinking about this Middle East problem that does not go away when the United States and Israel manage it sort of by themselves? I would love to see that, frankly. I've been for a long time wishing the Chinese would take a more active role internationally, even at the UN, where they tend to just abstain. They don't really veto things. I mean, we'll see how Xi Jinping wants to actually play this, but... There's no question China wants to play a bigger international role in this region, partly for financial investment reasons, partly right. because it sees itself as the coming power. And so this could be hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I would like to be optimistic about it. I think China could play a role. Certainly the Saudis, the Gulfies could play a role, but Part of what has to happen, it seems to me, is however this ends, Gaza has to be turned into a place of security for its own people, let alone for the people on the other side of this border. Absolutely. But at the same time, before we're done, Steve, I want to propose a, you and I invite Xi Jinping to express an interest here, standing by, looking at our, with a sort of sane distance, China is deeply involved in trade and investment with Israel. They do a land office business with Saudis on oil. They're very much a player in the Middle East. Uh, what do you think, Xi Jinping? How, how might we work at this? It's a very good question. I mean, part of what complicates it is Iran, because Iran's one of the few countries helping Russia in Ukraine. Um, and Iran is like Hamas, dedicated to the elimination of the state of Israel. Now, China would have to manage that, but I think China could, I mean, could help with um, diplomacy, it could help with money, um, and 
I would like to think so. But I agree with you. There has to be a new way of thinking about this this problem because the old way of thinking about a two-state solution, though that I think is is the right outcome, clearly isn't working. I think, though, the only sensible conclusion to me remains the two-state solution. I think we need to understand that we need to think about it in a different way and to negotiate it in a different way, much the way the Norwegians did when they did the Oslo Accords. That was a pathway toward a two-state solution that failed. But there has to be a new means of thinking, including new players, uh, new guarantees um, that are, as I say, can give the people of Gaza um, freer, more prosperous, happier life because it has not been happy because, yes, Israel shut the door, but Egypt shut the door and Hamas ran the place like a, like a religious dictatorship. I mean, this was not a pleasant place to be. And so one wants a better life for Gazans and one wants a better life, a safer life for people living inside Israel proper. Yes, and with all that neglect, the United States basically looked away. Yes, it did. And also it will include a new understanding of what happens on the West Bank and perhaps a new understanding under a younger leader of who will lead the Palestinian Authority. There's a lot to play for here, um, and I hope people take it as seriously as they should, because otherwise we're going to go through this same cycle in another five and six years' time. Um, There has to be two states for two peoples. I mean, nothing else makes sense to me. Steve Erlanger, thank you so much for four decades at least of good friendship and years and years of marvelous correspondence. Steve Erlanger is the chief diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times in Europe. Steve, it's been a pleasure. We should do it again soon. It's been my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much.